Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today is January 3rd of 2022. This is going to be a different podcast than normal since I'm not going to actually be interviewing a guest today, but instead I'm going to be discussing the latest data related to the Omicron variant and what seems to be happening with regards to morbidity, mortality, frequency of illness, and all of the other important pieces of information out there to help guide us in our decision-making as this pandemic becomes now more of an endemic disease process that will be with us for quite some time. So let's get started. So we've been talking about coronavirus for a long time in the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter and in a couple of the podcasts with Dr. Danny Benjamin. Now we have this new issue that we've been talking about for a few weeks called Omicron. Omicron is a new variant that was detected first in South Africa and quickly became a variant of concern, according to the CDC. It is called Omicron, as all the other variants have been labeled after Greek alphabet letters, or otherwise known as B1.1.529. What's interesting about this variant, as opposed to Alpha, Delta, Mu, and the others, is that it has 30 mutations in the spike protein region, making it a player in vaccine evasion, which was very different than the previous issues with the other variants. We've noticed now that this variant also appears to be less deadly, and we'll get into the why in a little bit. But for now, that piece of information is critical because with a less deadly infectious disease of quote-unquote the pandemic nature, that now appears to be becoming an endemic disease, less mortality really changes the calculus on every decision we make as far as what we need to do to control transmission and other further mitigation measures. But if we get back to the mutations themselves, it looks like a dozen of those 30 plus mutations are specifically in the spike protein. Now, that's the largest number of mutations seen to date. There were a few mutations in the alpha and the delta, but nothing to the level of of 12. So that mutational change has brought about a complete inability of our antibody production system to effectively now mitigate the ability of the SARS-2 virus upon entry into a vaccinated person or a naturally infected person from preventing the illness at all. The big concern a few weeks ago based on this early data was, are we looking at a more infectious Delta version? So i.e. we're spreading even faster. Now it's avoiding the vaccine. Are we gonna see equal or more death? But that has not panned out to be the case. Early reports out of South Africa have proved to be true. That death rate has not followed infectiousness, nor has hospitalizations. So then the big question was, well, are we going to see the same thing in the U.S. and Europe? And to date, that also does not appear to be the case. And we'll get into, again, the why in a little bit. But that is the, the silver lining of this entire Omicron story, is that, yes, it is significantly more infectious, maybe double that of Delta. But it's not as deadly. So we have a totally different issue on our hands than SARS-2 Alpha or SARS-2 Delta, which are the two major variants that have been basically irritating us throughout this entire pandemic. When we think about it from the more infectiousness side, 
we now have pretty good understanding of the fact that herd immunity, which is something we thought would be possible early in the pandemic, is no longer likely based on the fact of this virus being so, so infectious and with this mutational change that the odds of us getting to 90, 95% herd immunity are not high. Now, we're going to get to 100% eventually of everyone being somewhat infected at some point in time naturally or and or vaccinated. And that will get us to a point of consistently decreasing hospitalization and death rates, which again will be a harbinger of the end of this entire pandemic endemic situation. Omicron is so transmissible that it is flying around the country right now, especially in the northern colder states where people are hunkered down indoors and just came out of the holidays where there was a lot of gatherings uh, where spread can occur at a fast rate. We have seen the highest daily case rate in the entire pandemic over the past week with 486,000 plus cases in a single day. And that number, I think, was just crested today as well. The case number is actually probably a lot higher than that due to the uncounted positive home tests. You know, I've been talking to many friends who've had symptoms, tested at home, tested positive, and that data is not making it to the CDC or the, the tabulation systems in the federal government. So we're probably way above that at the case rate. But yet again, we are not seeing hospital overwhelm, especially here in the South. We're not seeing high death rates based on what we're tracking. And so overall, this appears to be a silver lining. So for me, the big issue needs to be keeping our focus on hospitalizations and not case number, as case number now is no longer a useful metric when we're discussing this pandemic or this endemic situation. South Africa also turned the corner after a six-week run. So that bodes well for this wave that we're seeing. Is it going to be a fast burn because it's so infectious, flying through the community? Tons of people are getting infected, probably not even showing up to the medical system because the disease is so mild now, and maybe it's going to burn through in six weeks. We'll see. The seven-day moving average is super high, which again is owing to the infectiousness of this situation. It appears that Delta is now being outcompeted which again bodes well because Delta seems to be more associated with hospitalization and death, especially in the unvaccinated population, for which there is a rather large swath of people in the United States that have not received the vaccine. And whether or not they've had natural infection, we don't know. The big issue remains, as always, that if you've had two doses of the mRNA vaccine and or had previous natural infection and survived, your risk of a significant outcome problem from this new strain, or even Delta, frankly, at this point, the probability of a hospitalization or death event is very, very, very low. If you are unvaccinated and not seen this infection to date, then your risk remains at that whatever it was early on in the pandemic, probably roughly around 1% if you see Delta, and significantly less than that, not likely if you see Omicron. The big issue here remains, and will remain for a long time, that if you are unhealthy from the perspective of your metabolics or age, i.e. you have chronic diseases of aging, which would be renal disease, what we call kidney disease, neurologic diseases that are very far along like Alzheimer's or advanced Parkinson's, any of the metabolic syndrome issues, which would be hypertension, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease or heart disease where you have cholesterol plaques built up in your heart causing heart attacks, diabetes or obesity that's based on inflammatory type issues, you do have a risk of a bad outcome 
even if vaccinated and even if previously infected, because those are risk factors for a worse outcome. Now, this is still less likely if you've been infected and survived and or vaccinated because you have T and B cell immunity. So let's keep that all into perspective. Now, as of this recording, there are 55 million known cases in the United States, which is probably close to double that by now, in truth. And we know there's around 824,000 deaths from COVID-related diagnoses. How many of those were true only COVID? Hard to say. The vast majority of them are probably people who had significant disease and COVID just helped them along, unfortunately, down the path towards morbidity and mortality. So for me... I look at this simply Omicron is now more infectious, but less severe variant than Delta. And that for us right now is a new worldview of this pandemic. And that is actually a good thing. Omicron is everywhere in the United States right now. There is not a single state that is spared from the high volume of disease that we're seeing. But again, hospitalization and deaths remain decoupled completely from cases meaning that we're likely well on our way to mild COVID endemicity, or likely now more of a coronavirus variant like the first four that caused the common cold. We may be heading towards that pay where it's a really irritating common cold with fever and other symptoms. But again, this remains to be seen. Hopefully, Omicron will completely outcompete Delta and remain competing outcompeting out Alpha, which appears to be gone, so that we don't see a resurgence in any type of hospitalization or death situation. When we looked at the situations occurring early in this Omicron wave, there was some question of new disease issues in kids. Are we seeing more multi-inflammatory syndrome possibly because more kids are now getting admitted to the hospital with this Omicron-based variant? But it appears that that is likely due to the fact that a high percentage of children still are not vaccinated and therefore are at risk for novel infection does not appear that there's an increased frequency of disease, just that we're having more kids get sick. Therefore, we're going to have a higher number, absolute number of patients admitted to the hospital. But this is not a higher frequency, i.e. there's no data that I've seen that Omicron is more dangerous to children than Delta or Alpha. And that's really important when we're looking at making decisions around disease. The other big issue we have to talk about is why is the federal government, the CDC, the administration of this executive branch of our government not talking about natural disease being an important predictor of risk? For a long time, we're hearing over and over and over again that if you do not have two doses of the vaccine, you are not protected against this virus. And that is not proven true by the data. Is the vaccine effective in preventing significant hospitalization or death? The answer is yes. Is the vaccine capable of preventing you from getting sick from Omicron? The answer is no. Even with a booster, tons of people are getting sick from Omicron. It's just mild. But lots of people are getting sick from Omicron who had previous uh, natural disease from Delta or Alpha, and they are also having mild disease, which is very similar to common colds from coronaviruses. A lot of people get sick with a common cold from a coronavirus, one of the four strains every year. So we are likely looking at now that this is becoming a new endemic coronavirus. Omicron may be the final one. We don't know this. Another mutation may happen. But if this is the case, and it is a more mild disease, like one, two, three, or four of the coronaviruses, not like uh, SARS-1 or MERS, then maybe this is not that big of a deal, 
right? And so this is the questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves as we move forward over the next few weeks with our decision-making around this new Omicron variant, which brings up the big question, do we need to boost? What groups need to boost? Should everyone boost? If you listen to the federal government, the executive branch again, the CDC, everybody should boost, including everyone over the age of 12. I find that hard to swallow. If you are healthy, previously vaccinated and or infected, the odds are very high you're going to get exposed to the virus and have a mild infection again. If you are boosted, you're still likely to have an exposure and a small infection. Therefore, I'm not sure what the rationale is behind this. We have no data that I'm aware of that is solid of what three mRNA vaccines do in a calendar year, especially not in children who have risk of myocarditis if they're male and even some female patients have had myocarditis. So I'm not on in, in line with this reality. I'd like to see more data uh, that, that, that need for booster is, is omnipresent. You know, Europe is not recommending that in teenagers. Europe is not recommending Moderna because it's a higher risk of the, the myocarditis, the heart inflammation. So we have a lot of nuanced discussion to have around boosting. What is very clear from the data and what's very clear for me is if you have a comorbid disease or advanced age, you need to boost. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Omicron is definitely a milder infection from a severity perspective. What we would like to see now is what's the hospital-based data on Omicron? Who's getting admitted to the hospital and why? Do we have disease risk stratification data that we can better allocate who deserves or needs a booster and maybe take on that extra risk of the booster dose? That makes a lot of sense to me. For me, if you have had two doses of an mRNA vaccine, your risk of death is almost zero if you're healthy, young, without comorbid disease. If you contract the virus, you get a positive test with mild symptoms, quarantine at home, wait five days, wear your mask after that five days and move on, right? I think that sounds like the new norm. To me, I don't understand a society where we're going to sit and say we need to vaccinate over and over again. Are we going to vaccinate every three months? Because we see now that within three months, immunity is waning. That doesn't make any sense to me. Vaccinate every three months for a disease that seems to be milder. I'm really not sure how this all comes to pass. So, you know, when we look at this, I think boosting needs to be a personal choice. I am not going against anything that the government says so much as giving you data as to what makes sense to me. You must Pick and choose based on what you learn and hear from everybody, what makes sense to you. What I do think, without a shadow of a doubt, is if you have not been naturally infected and survived, you should get vaccinated with two doses of an mRNA vaccine. And I would say if you're over the age of 25, Moderna or Pfizer, if you're younger, I would take Pfizer because there's less apparent myocarditis risk. So for me, that makes the most sense in the world of boosters. The other big issue with boosters is if we're using these doses to repeatedly treat people in this country for possibly preventing a mild infection in those people who have good immune systems and are healthy, what about all those doses that should be going to the countries that now don't have the ability to vaccinate? 
That makes more sense to me too. Vaccine equity, right? Why not? That's a big piece of this discussion that's not happening. We could hopefully get enough vaccines into people so maybe another mutation doesn't show up in the world, right? If you look at where all the mutations occurred, South Africa, Brazil, India, places where there wasn't much vaccine and lots of uh, endemic disease. So these are really important questions and really important thoughts to have. As you know with me, if you followed me or talked to me or followed my newsletter, I'm not a groupthink guy. I like to think outside the box and what makes the most sense for society at large and the individual. Individuals have rights and should have rights, and I am a big fan of all of those things. So again, this is about data, discussing the true data, what we need to do, what we need to know. The other big piece of the pie that we need to talk about is mental health. This pandemic has been a nightmare for mental health of all ages, but children especially. Lockdowns, mask wearing, fear, stoked by the media constantly. Fear just naturally from being told that you could die from an infection that consistently and persistently pervades the airwaves. Here we are, Omicron appears weaker, and that's not the main story. The main story is case volume, tons of uh, risk and all this kind of stuff, and fear of hospital closures, yet there's no sign that that's actually happening. We're stoking fear in people that really is unfounded at this time. As always, we should always be giving truth, telling people to be smart, eat healthy, take care of yourself, sleep, exercise, don't drink too much alcohol, relax, pray, do all the things that keep your immune system tip-top shape while you get vaccinated if you haven't been and or at least hopefully have had natural illness with no issues, right? So the calculus needs to be about every decision from here on out is based on our mental health as people. It can't be a groupthink reality that the only answer for us has to be that we mask up, avoid each other, and, and you know, get triple, five, four, six, eight vaccines. I mean, here we have see Israel now on their fourth dose. When does it end? What's the end game? You know, I, I listened to Peter Tia's podcast today with uh, Zubin Damian. He's a Z-Dog. He has a great podcast and Marty, McCar- from, Marty McCary from Hopkins. And they had a really d- good discussion about what is the end game? And I've been saying this for, for a long time. When do we decide that this thing is now no longer worth taking all of our lives and twisting them upside down, especially the kids, missing school? We are going to rue the day that we see the damage that we have done related to the educational disparities of kids in this pandemic. How many children who lived in marginalized communities where they didn't have access to good Wi-Fi and were told to spend an entire year on Wi-Fi to learn from? Half the time they couldn't learn anything. God forbid mom has six kids and they're all trying to learn off a hotspot. I mean, this was such a poorly calculated and decided area. And then you look at the differential between Southern states and Northern states. Southern states didn't close down and kids stayed in school and had better outcomes from that, that health perspective. I could tell you in my area where our kids were, things seemed to be a whole lot better than what I'm reading about from the data in different areas of the North. These issues need to be kept in context now every time we make a decision. Closing schools really should not be a decision anymore unless children are dying. Every adult has the ability now to get vaccinated. There are better medicines. We have better understandings of the ICU care. Everything says that if you have risk, 
you can take better mitigation measures. You can get third dose, fourth dose, right? You can wear your masks everywhere you go. We can't tell everybody in society anymore that they need to skip school or do this, that, and the other with this new Omicron variant. So these are the discussions that we're going to have to have in in the new upcoming period of time. So I think that right now, with COVID and Omicron in, in specific, this is actually probably the best case scenario for us moving forward. Omicron is less deadly while being more transmissible. Therefore, we're going to see a lot of disease, a lot of people getting infected at some point over this whole year. Regardless of their vaccination status or prior infection, they are likely to have viral loads that are lower because this appears to be a less deadly disease. Now, that remains to be seen. I've not seen data of that truth. But hopefully, this will cause less mutation because we have less replication, less viral load, less viral expansion, right? But the risk still remains for me. If you're unvaccinated and have you not seen this virus before, that's the, that's the group that I worry about, having higher infection capabilities from the viral load perspective, i.e. the virus can replicate better in the person who has no antecedent T or B cell memory to this, to this virus. So for me, we're absolutely in a different world now with a milder variant coupled to a mostly non-SARS to naive population in the United States and many other countries in the world, but definitely here. We have north of 60-something percent vaccination take in this country, plus a lot more people have had the virus naturally and and survived it. So we should have robust T and B cell memory throughout the country for which to tackle any viral variant, but in specific now this Omicron, even though it's evaded our vaccine, it appears that that's not really a big deal other than we're seeing lots of cases. And again, I'm not worried about cases personally, unless those cases are transmitting into disease and i.e. hospitalization and death. Cases at home with a fever, sore throat, loss of smell for a couple of days, that is no different than every flu season that we have every year, right? And the flu kills a lot of people every year, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000 people a year, according to the historical data, right? So if that becomes the new norm, then we treat it like we have always treated flu. We vaccinate those that are marginalized health-wise, i.e. the elderly, those with comorbid disease, and the really young. That makes complete sense. What doesn't make sense to me is continuing this onslaught of draconian measures to control the pandemic that we've never been able to control from the beginning and still can't. The one thing we can do is send more vaccine overseas to help people who have not seen it not get sick in the first place terribly. So for me, The big issue now is not Omicron's infectiousness. It is the fact that Omicron is less deadly. That is the big deal. That big issue is a good issue. The only problem I foresee is now we have this concern that if Omicron is this infectious and we see so many positive cases that need to quarantine now for five days if you're vaccinated and you have you know, no more symptoms, and I'll read directly from the CDC, people with COVID-19 should isolate for five days and if they are asymptomatic or their symptoms are resolving, i.e. without fever for 24 hours, follow that 
five-day quarantine period where the five-day mask-wearing period went around others to minimize the risk of infecting people they encounter. The change is motivated by science, demonstrating that the majority of SARS-CoV-2 transmission occur early in the course of illness, generally in the one to two days prior to onset of symptoms and two to three days after. This is a very welcome admission on my, from my idea to the change in the face of good science that has been around for a while. This should have been changed a long time ago because that science has been out for quite a while. And now with Omicron, it has hedged it a little bit more because now it's a little bit faster. But we've known for quite a while that most people are not that infectious after that five-day period. Nonetheless, I am happy they made this admission and this change because it does come with a cost. All of these folks that are testing positive that missed work for five days could be your nurse, your doctor, your, um, you know, care provider, or even your family member who misses you for an event. These are all important things that life provides for us for our stress reduction, our health control. And if all of these people are missing work because they have mild infection by testing positive and needing to quarantine, that's another big issue. Because again, this is likely with us forever, right? So if we're going to have a situation where every time you get COVID, Omicron variant, you have to quarantine for five days plus a five-day masking period, that's going to be a big mess for this country for the next decade, two decades, three decades, right? So there has to be a new norm coming. What that is and what that needs to be, I think, should be written by the medical community, not by the policy wonks in D.C. I think the medical community needs to come up with a better idea and send this out there. And and I agree with Peter Atia and, and Z-Dog and, and Dr. McCary that if you work for the federal government and draw your money from the federal government and are an elected official in the healthcare space, that's not your position to make this decision because you're potentially biased by an election or something else that's coming. This should be done by the physicians that are infectious disease experts, a consortium of maybe 20, 30 ombudsmen who are the best in this country, who come up with the best answers that give us people something to trust. Because frankly, I think that's another big issue that, that has occurred in this pandemic, that the erosion of trust in the physician community is, is a big, big worry. Getting back to the hospital systems though, you know, if they start to see high volumes of cases in the ICUs and the hospitals, then that local community makes big mitigation changes. That makes sense. Until that happens, and especially with Omicron being weaker, I'm not too sure that makes any sense. But, you know, for me, time will tell. But so far, so good. The other piece of data that I find interesting is the current rates of COVID hospitalization for vaccine individuals, roughly 3.9 per 100,000 cases if you were vaccinated again, versus 67.8 per 100,000 if you're unvaccinated. Now, measure this against a typical flu season where 20 hospitalizations per 100,000. This, all this data comes from the CDC. So now we know that if you're vaccinated, your risk of dying from COVID is four per 100,000 roughly versus 20 per 100,000 for the flu. And again, what do we do for the flu? Do we test everybody and keep them out of work? These are things we need to think about. There was some really interesting data from Germany, which again comes to my ideas around vaccinating kids and what we need to be doing. The, da- the new data from Germany states that for hospitalizations, there were 36 per 10,000 children, 1.7 per 10,000 for ICU admissions, and death was 0.9 per 10,000. Again, this is D- German data. 
Further drilling this data down noted that children who were free of disease pre-infection, i.e. comorbid disease, cancer, something else, had pretty much zero risk of death. So let me say that again. If you do not have any pre-infectious disease comorbid problems, so before you were exposed to SARS-2 and you had no disease in your body, i.e., asthma, neurologic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, something, your risk of death was pretty much zero. So for me, that's a huge piece of information that just came out of Germany, which has roughly the same vaccination rates as we do for everybody. When they looked at multi-inflammatory syndrome, that was one per 4,000 cases. That's not a trivial number. We had five during the entire pandemic here that I'm aware of. So one in 4,000, that's, that's not a small number. But what this data set doesn't say is that it overestimates these stats as they cannot expect to have an accurate case volume denominator. Because again, a lot of people don't report that they're sick or kids especially who have mild or asymptomatic disease. Now, the group tried very hard to account for these missed infections by antibody titers and statistical predictions. However, my take on the data is that the, the answer for the ICU admissions is probably way, way less than 1.7 per 10,000, and the death rate is probably way, way less than 0.9 per 10,000. Either way, as far as I'm concerned, those numbers are exceedingly low. So again, these are data points to take when you're thinking about, does my child need to go to school? Should kids remain masking now with the new Omicron variant? Should my child be vaccinated depending on their age? So keep all this data in mind when you make your decision. Currently, there's a huge push to do rapid testing at home. The federal government's buying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these and sending them all around. People are buying them offline, trying to find them now is impossible. But what do the rapid tests do and do they work, right? So it's a useful tool if you're actually sick, right? So if you have symptoms, fever, congestion, cough, something like that, then the rapid antigen tests are actually pretty good. They pick up viral protein fragments in your nasal secretions after you swab your nose and you're running that quick test. If you have a reasonable viral load, there will be a larger amount of these antigen, these proteins sitting around in your nasal secretions. Thus, the test is likely to be even higher positive. Now, any sign of that second line means it's positive. Now, there are some false positives, as always, with any test. But, you know, the bottom line is... If the test is negative, it doesn't guarantee you're not infected. The PCR is probably the only way to be pretty much sure, you know, that, that you don't have it. Omicron is infecting at a more rapid rate than Delta, meaning that early testing is more likely to be positive because you're developing more viral protein particles faster in the nasopharynx. It turns out that, you know, Omicron does a better job of replicating in the larger lung tubes in the nasal passageway as opposed to Delta, which was more in the, in the terminal lung tube. So you're probably even more likely to pick it up on one of these tests. Now, again, the preliminary chain reaction or the PCR tests that amplify the viral RNA are much, 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 much better at picking up even with lower viral load. So again, at, co- at home kits are, at, excuse me, at home antigen kits are useful but only when you're really sick. If you want to know if you've had COVID, but you don't have no symptoms, the best answer is to do a PCR. But again, PCR could pick up even dead virus. So that could have been something from a while ago. It's a very difficult situation. The current engine home tests that are really well used right now are Binax now and QuickView. Both of them are able to detect Omicron as far as the FDA and these companies say. So, you know, if you're exposed directly to COVID and you want to know if you have 
the virus and you have symptoms, I would test, you know, as soon as you develop symptoms or three and six days after exposure, if you have no symptoms, and then you have a much better chance of picking it up. But again, nothing is, is a hundred percent. You know, I was reading a, an awesome article. You all know that I love Monica Gandhi's work. She's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco Infectious Disease Department. And she just wrote a great piece in, in Time Magazine on the new metrics of what we should be doing with Omicron. I highly encourage you to read it. I'm just going to give you a little piece of it. If public health officials tie policies to hospitalizations, not cases, the media's obsession with case counting will likely abate and help refocus attention on serious illness alone. With this sharper focus, our time can be better spent on vaccinating the unvaccinated and boosting as soon as possible the most vulnerable, such as residents of nursing homes, persons over age 65, and those with chronic health issues. However, this new strategy highlights the need for the CDC to increase its tracking and reporting of severe breakthrough infection by the health status of individuals so that the most vulnerable can be rapidly identified and prioritized for a life-saving treatment. You know, this is so logical, so simple, and, and should be what we're doing immediately. Why we're not doing this makes no sense to me at all. If we knew all of the vaccine breakthroughs that lead to hospitalization and death were in a certain subgroup of less healthy and at-risk individuals, we could then target. This is what personalized medicine should be. We could be targeting the people that need extra special help, i.e. more mitigation measures of where they can be protected, more masking, better masks, using N95s instead of the surgical masks. You know, and then targeted boosters and then giving them direct evidence. Hey, f change your diet, sleep better, make sure you're working on those things and we'll help you work on those things as physicians. So therefore you have less risk of disease. I mean, this just makes such logical sense. I don't understand why we don't do this, but you know me, I'm passionate and I'm sorry, I'm getting a little passionate about that. You know, the other thing I'd love to see is genomic analysis. Like look at like 23andMe, do a SNP analysis and then send your data off to a COVID-based situation where some of the COVID genes that are related to toll-like receptors and other innate pathogen recognition systems to find defects in your innate immunity so you don't see the virus well. I'd love to see that data so we could again target those people who are harder to find because they don't have obvious comorbid disease. To me, this brings up the biggest issue we need to get away from thinking a case is the biggest problem, a positive case. It is not. The biggest problem right now is an unvaccinated person who gets sick for the first time. The comorbid individuals who have diseases that are not beneficial from an inflammatory stature, uh, stature if you are at risk for a bad outcome, elderly, and, and those with immune system defects, if we can find them. Those are the real mitigating circumstances that we need to be paying attention to, not the positive case that's in a vaccinated and boosted person who's healthy or a previously infected person who has survived it fine and is healthy. These are not the super spreaders of this disease. So, you know, let's keep this all in perspective. You know, I've shown in multiple studies over the past calendar year that one of the biggest risk factors for super spreaders is obesity and comorbid disease, but specifically obesity. So let's target these populations for help. Again, help is the key word. This is not stratifying people into buckets of you are not doing what you're supposed to do because you're obese. That is not at all the case here. We are 100% as physicians focused on your health and your benefit. You know, I, 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 I struggle mightily with our country 
not giving people adequate advice because they're afraid of telling them the truth based on this, that, or the other. If you are in a less healthy state, whatever that is, whether you are skinny and unhealthy or overweight and unhealthy or perfect weight and unhealthy, the bottom line is the same. We as physicians should be using metrics that help you make better decisions. It is not judgment. It never should be judgment. It is health. That is the only way I see this. You know, when I go back to to Monica, again, quote, protecting those at risk of severe breakthroughs also means the end of blanket mask mandates. Our adult population has access to highly effective vaccines for almost a year now, and more recently, all children ages five and older are eligible for vaccination for those that need it. Use of N95, KN95, and other really high-quality masks should be encouraged among select high-risk populations, but perpetual masking of the entire population is not sustainable or necessary. Our children, the demographic group at lowest risk of serious COVID-19 illness, continue to endure more hours of uninterrupted masking than higher-risk adults. This strategy would mean making child masking optional at 12 weeks after the last school-age child becomes eligible for vaccination. I mean, you can't say it again any better. What is the end game of this pandemic endemic? If Omicron is the new norm and it is highly infectious, spreading like crazy, but is lower risk of disease, the kids should be out of their masks. They are not the high risk spreading group. All teachers can wear N95 masks and can be vaccinated and boosted, which has shown their death risk is pretty much very, 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 very low. If you have serious comorbid disease, work on that disease to bring your risk down. Uh, you know, so for me, these are the things that make the most sense. As we move forward. And, and, you know, and this, this has to be put into context again. If you have had natural infection or had two doses of the mRNA vaccine or natural infection plus one dose of the mRNA vaccine, which was shown to be very effective, or even better, two doses of the mRNA vaccine 12 weeks apart instead of three weeks apart, all of these things have been shown in study now to be the way to go then you really at that point know that you have really good T-cells, the cytotoxic killer T-cells that go and catch this virus early on and start killing it so it can't replicate quickly and have a huge viral load and cause you harm, which then saps your system through inflammation and long-term risks of autoimmune disease and other things of neurologic nature and all the cardiovascular risks and all the things we've seen with this pandemic to date. So we know you have good in B and T-cell variants function. You know, we've talked about in the past when when we looked at how your immune system trains itself. It first sees a spike protein. It sends that tissue via dendritic cell or, or another macrophage over to your lymph nodes where it goes through a series of alterations to what our antibodies will look like against that spike protein in order to effectively predict mutations. And so again, escape from the virus of the vaccine has occurred, but it has not escaped from the perspective of death and hospitalization because you still have great immunity from your T and B cells, which are way smarter than we give ourselves credit for. Our immune systems are brilliant. God gave us this amazing system in concert with how the viruses are pretty smart at mutating. We're smart at mutating too. It is not a zero sum game. It is us against them. It's a constant push-pull. It is the yin and yang of the world. It is black against white. It is the way everything works in history. So remember that when you think about your antibodies are gone, who cares? You still have T and B cells. Now, do the antibodies help you have less of an illness or no illness? Yeah, sure. But it's the T and B cells that matter for death. We got to keep that into perspective. 
One study that I want to highlight that's in preprint was from Red et al. in 2021, and I'm going to sort of quote it. The analysis examined if the previously identified viral epitopes, epitopes are the protein fragments, that are targeted by the CD8-positive T-cells, which are the cytotoxic, the killer T-cells, in these individuals, which are there were 52 distinct epitopes, these protein regions, are mutated in the newly described Omicron variant of concern. With that's 50 mutations. Within this population, only one low-prevalence epitope or protein fragment from the spike protein restricted to two human leukocyte antigen alleles, which is just a way we call HLA. It's just, I'm not even going to get into that. And found in two out of 30 or 7% of individuals contained a single amino acid change in the protein. One amino acid. Remember, proteins are made up of chains of amino acids. Just one was changed associated with this Omicron variant of concern. These data points suggest that virtually all individuals with existing anti-SARS-CoV-2 CD8-positive T-cell responses should recognize your Omicron variant of concern and that SARS-CoV-2 has not evolved extensive T-cell escape mutations at this time. And again, this is T-cell. This new variant, Omicron, has evaded the antibodies. It has not evaded the T-cells. And this is critical because the T-cells train the B-cells. So the B-cells will be able to eventually learn, pump out really good antibodies as soon as you get sick. This is the reason behind why we're not seeing lots of death and hospitalizations from this new variant. We have good antecedent immune knowledge. We learn. Our bodies are super smart. The risk factors remain if you are an unhealthy person based on your antecedent lifestyle choices that are driving obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and then some unfortunate diseases that may be not related so much to lifestyle choices. For me, this study that I just stated by Red et al. is likely the most important discussion here today. This is the main reason for me behind why we have milder disease in individuals reinfected with this COVID Omicron. And that's why people were having milder disease when they were reinfected with Delta if they were vaccinated or had natural disease before because they had antecedent memory. They were no longer naive. They were no longer blind. They could see the virus quickly. It didn't get a chance to replicate fast and grow at exponential rates, which overwhelms the immune system, sort of like overwhelming a hospital. If you get a lot of patients in quickly and they can take up all the beds, you'll overwhelm. Right? But if you treat them all quickly out of the hospital before they get in, you're better. Same thing with this virus. If you can get a head start on it when it first starts to see the system, it'll never overwhelm you. And that is, to me, the take-home point of these entire discussions. We have to look at the totality of the immune response. We cannot simply focus on this antibody picture or these case numbers because they are not telling the whole story. And that's the reason I started to do this podcast today because I figured it was really important to get this out there to everybody because I see so much misinformation about what's really happening. I mean, the media is playing this up like crazy. Cases are flying everywhere. Hospitals will be overwhelmed even though we're not seeing that, right? So for me, I'm going to sort of go into what my basic tenets are, and most of you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, to help reduce your risk of a bad outcome pre-disease and post-disease, right? Avoid all refined carbohydrates, especially liquid sugars and high fructose corn syrup. Full stop. That is the biggest thing you can do for your health. Get away from the foods that are driving insulin resistance, driving obesity, driving heart disease, driving high blood pressure. Avoid these 
when you eat lots of fat too, because it turns out fat is also driving through diacylglycerol. This issue with translocating the GLUT4 receptor in the muscle, which allows sugar to come into the muscle in the first place for energy storage and energy burning. So then therefore all that sugar gets turned into fat storage systems in adipose tissue and in your liver, right? So here's the combination, refined carbohydrates, liquid sugars, high fructose corn syrup, and fats. What is all that? Standard high uh, volume processed American junk food, frappuccinos, donuts, burgers, fries, pizza. Some of this food in small volumes is perfectly fine, but if that's the mainstay of your diet, you're in trouble. 90% of your diet needs to be fresh vegetables and fruits and all the good stuff, right? Chock full of micronutrients like zinc, magnesium, vitamin A, B, C, D, and E. All of these things are involved in immune cellular activity and metabolic activity of every cell in your body, mitochondrial function. These are critical things, right? You know, avoid sedentary behavior. Why? Because sedentary behavior drives insulin resistance, obesity, and mental stress. Really simple. Avoid all toxins, drugs, chemicals that promote oxidation, DNA damage, and cellular stress that can drive a passive macrophage M2 type, right? These are the type of macrophages that are not as good at doing what we want them to, which is engulf, kill, and destroy. Avoid mental stress overload through meditation and prayer, keeping the pro-inflammatory hormone cortisol in check. Stress drives cortisol. Cortisol drives inflammation through NF-kappa-B, nuclear factor kappa-B, right? So you need to retain as much stress-free living as you can. And what's the number one thing happening to people now? We're being stressed. Why? Because we're being told all the time that life is dangerous. We're masked up. We're avoiding people. Don't go to holiday parties. Don't meet with your loved ones. This is crazy. It is driving more stress, more cortisol, more inflammation. More inflammation leads to more risk. We don't want more risk. Make sure to treat your allergies and food intolerances appropriately through elimination diets and targeted medicines and supplements. If you are intolerant to gluten, whether it's celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that will drive inflammation. Avoid it. Dairy, avoid it, right? So depending on your makeup, take care of your body. Listen to it. It talks to you. Take fiber supplements. I love fiber supplements. The best way to get fiber is through beans, vegetables, and fruits. But if you have a hard time with that, actually add some fiber supplements, Humans used to consume 50 to 125 grams of fiber a day. Now we consume between 10 and 15. Makes no sense. We need to go back to what was meant to be. Prebiotics, which are basically the fiber sources that feed the microbes. These are the types of fibers that actually are useful for microbes. Not all fibers are prebiotics, but many are. These high-quality microbes then in turn enhance mucus production, micronutrient synthesis, toxin clearance, reducing lipopolysaccharide, which is an inflammatory bacterial byproduct. You know, these are all useful, beneficial things. I like the supplement N-acetylcysteine, S-C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-E. It's a precursor. It's a rate-limiting step in the production of glutathione. Glutathione is a chemical involved in all of our cells for clearing foreign agents, xenobiotics. And oh, by the way, happens to be involved in Th1 activity, which is the type of cells that are involved in killing viruses. Avoid low oxygen states, right? Hypoxia or low oxygen drives hypoxia-induced factor 1 alpha and inflammation. We don't like that. So if you have oxygen issues, make sure you're on your oxygen. Make sure you're doing the things you need to do to keep yourself healthy. Right? Avoid cigarette smoke. Avoid chemicals that hurt your lungs that decrease your ability to diffuse oxygen. Obtain effective sleep. If you haven't listened to Dr. Matthew Walker's podcast with Dr. Peter Tia, there are three of them. You need to listen to them. They are brilliant. 
Effective sleep every day is a key to stress reduction. I am a big fan of fasting, time-restricted feeding. Now, I am a very skinny guy, and fasting is not good for me in a lot of ways because I don't have a whole lot of body fat to begin with, so I'm the one who's going to die in a famine. But at the same point, some time-restricted feeding, which I like to do a lot, is useful for me because I get my calories into a six-hour cycle, so I allow during that other part of the cycle for my intestines to function better, for my body. But I don't do long fasts because I really can't tolerate them, but many people can, and that's actually advantageous to cellular function. I've explained it before that when you go through a period of fasting, you need to produce cells. Um, and how do you produce cells? We need the building blocks. Where do you get the, where do you get the building blocks from? Well, you break yourself down. What are you going to break down? You can break down the weak cells first. It's like a train you need to get from station A to station Z. If it's a wood-burning train and you have wood only to get to station M, how are you going to finish the train cycle? Well, the easy way is you break down wooden chairs on your train or any wood you have. Well, are you going to break the nice wooden chairs first? You're going to break the garbage wooden chairs. Well, clearly you take the garbage wooden chairs. And then when you get to station Z, you grab new wood and you rebuild your chairs. This is what the body does. During fasting, it breaks down weaker cells, takes the ba building byproducts and uses them as energy. And then eventually, when you get to a place where you get to eat again, you build up those stores again. And oh, by the way, you have now a fully functional, healthy system. I'm going to finish today with a little back in a COVID time capsule. So, you know, back in April of 2020, you know, it's amazing. I've written, I think, 52 COVID newsletters since this all started. But back in April of 2020, I had written... Flattening the curve has occurred effectively in most parts of the United States. That is a good thing because we still have serious supply chain issues with protective gear for healthcare workers, right? I have friends that work for companies that produce the PPE materials and the stories that I'm hearing as to why are frustrating and a clear sign that supply chain needs to be United States based from here on out. That being said, where do we go from here? We have discussed this on and off over the last few weeks. However, the issue that is arising heavily right now is the economic damage that is occurring to the most vulnerable Americans. Poverty is the number one risk factor for negative health outcomes year over year, and we are slipping in that direction rapidly. The reality that keeping the country hunkered down for a prolonged period of time is fraught with peril on the poverty spectrum and thus the health spectrum. Children are not being significantly affected by the virus. However, they will suffer mightily if poverty grows exponentially. This is phase two of how we must see this pandemic, despite the frustrating reality that as we loosen restrictions, some individuals and more of them will get exposed and some will die. Dr. David Katz is a brilliant thinker, and he has provided us with some of the most logical and forward-thinking non-emotional plans for the future. His discussion is nonpartisan and science-centric, which is exactly what we need. So, you know, when I look back on this and I go back, wow, that was April of 2020, just a couple months into this pandemic, we were in lockdown, things were crazy. You know, I'm like, wow, that's so wild to read where we were at, you know? And, you know, there were so many discussions we had in the public space and also in these pages of this newsletter. And, and I realized that we got many things right, but we also got many things wrong. Herd immunity never turned out to be possible, but places like Sweden, in my mind, did it right. While much of the politically driven decisions in our country were wrong, especially in my mind in the North. I think Southern states did it better. Um, you know, for me, especially when it comes to failing our children, we stressed our children out completely with lockdowns, social isolation, and even worse, with poverty-based disproportionate educational failures. I am so worried 
about the coming decade of what we did to these poor children over the last 20 months. Education took a massive hit. And there were so many other things that went south. Many people were screaming for the children to receive preferential treatment within the calculus of the pandemic response only to see these ideas drowned out by the policymakers who were all about no one can die, right? And that was never, ever logical. It never made sense. You know, control, flatten the curve, decrease hospitalization, everything that was related to trying to mitigate the risk made a lot of sense. But outside of that, boy, were there a lot of mistakes as far as I'm concerned. To me, the key in all this stuff is we never took our eye off the science and the correct messages of what is best for the most vulnerable, our children. I feel really good about the messages we were trying to get out there. You know, again, you know, I, I've, I've listened to many different speakers and I love, you know, some of, you know, the work of Monica Gandhi. You know, many of you know I love Peter T. I think he's one of the best and smartest and brightest physicians in this country right now. And I was listening to him when he was praising the fact that he had moved to Texas right around the time before the pandemic started and how he was so grateful that his children didn't have to mask in schools when it was very clear that they were the very low risk group. You know, I remember writing a scathing review of teachers unions and their approach to the pandemic where they were putting themselves above the health of the children first and foremost. I remember being exceedingly frustrated by this reality when all of us, we were back at work. We were taking it on the chin, you know, masked up all the time, scared it and many different experiences. But yet other groups thought it wasn't important for them to be there for their kids. And again, I'm not going to get into the politics of this. You know, ultimately, I wasn't in their shoes and I can't judge them. You know, I, I went through a period of time there where I was frustrated, but it's not my place to judge. So for me, I buried that frustration. I let it go. You know, what's what's done is done. But for me, this pandemic has really taught us it is a study in what to not do again as it relates to children. You know, that's always my focus as a pediatrician is the kids should be protected. They are our lifeblood for the next generation. You know, maybe at the end of the day, you know, this is exactly what we should be taking away from this pandemic. What to do next time? You know, I think the messaging from the CDC has been god awful, and I believe that shot ourselves in the foot from a trust issue as a, as a group of physicians. I fear that you know, that may be one of the greatest losses of this pandemic other than the kids. I think trust has really taken a massive hit and that's really hard to regain. It's really easy to lose, but it's really hard to regain. You know, for me, the hallowed halls of medicine need to be unbiased leaders who do not owe the policymakers anything. They can't be worried about being reelected or anything related to that. They must act in the best interest of the patient, full stop. That is all. That is our Hippocratic oath to do no harm. If we're making decisions based on public policy for a political gain, that is awful. And just, just the way I feel. I hope that whenever I stop writing about COVID, whenever I stop talking about COVID, whenever I stop dreaming about COVID, you know, breathing this stuff, you know, that you feel in some way, shape or form that this podcast, the newsletters have been a service to you, some unbiased scientific-based information that helped you weed through the noise of this pandemic, hopefully helped you not be stressed out. You know, I, I, I really truly hope that, you know, with great humility, you know, as, as the podcaster and the, and the author of the newsletters that I'm helpful to you. You know, I, I know when I listen to other podcasts, I am very grateful for their time and effort. 
you know, especially again, Peter Tia, it's fantastic, right? And so for me, I hope I am offering you a similar service. I hope this podcast today is useful to weed through some of the noise of Omicron because there's a lot of noise. And, you know, again, humbly, I will state that, you know, we're not always right, but we are going to try and do our best and present the science. And I'm going to do my best always to be honest with you and truthful about the data and not try and bring, bring my biases to it. Now, I know that's not completely possible because I'm human. And unfortunately, there are biases that get in there, but I'm going to do my best to be truthful and honest based on the data. And, you know, that's where I'm going to leave you today with this podcast as, you know, as unbiased as I can be. And as always, I'm going to finish, hug those kids. I hope and pray that this is the coming of the end of this pandemic and I could switch back to more interesting topics um, of disease and health and specifically, as always, the news to use of the rubber meets the road or the headwaters of the disease to prevent death so we can live longer and prosper. Have a great day. For the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship.